welcome to the world of critical care. Today, we're going to be continuing our series on blood products with a discussion of plasma. Last week's episode, we really jumped in to packed red blood cells and also did some general overviews of our concerns and some of the issues when we transfuse blood products. Today's episode will be a little bit shorter because we're gonna be just talking about plasma and it really builds on the last episode. Now we remember then we talked about how we would take a whole blood sample in a lavender tube and it would be sent down to the lab. And that tube would have an anticoagulant in it. They centrifuge the sample and we get this nice separation. So we have our red blood cells settling to the bottom and this is known as our hematocrit. It's usually around 45%. Just above that, there's a small layer where we have our platelets and our white blood cells. And then above that, approximately 55% of the sample is our plasma. Now that plasma is mostly water. Up to 95% of the plasma is going to be water. That water component is also known as our, our serum. Now the plasma, which is that part we're talking about, typically has a slight yellow, amber hue to it. This is a colloid. So though some things in the plasma do go into solution really well because of the water, things like electrolytes, some of the proteins tend to not fully go into solution perfectly well. And because of that, it sort of has that opaque suspension. You can't really quite see through it. And we talked about in our colloid episode, what defines a colloid and plasma and all of our blood products are colloids. Now plasma is one of our critical transporters of proteins. And so proteins are one of the biggest components you want to think about when you think about plasma. And proteins is a very catch-all category, but we need to think about some of the things that are proteins. So first and foremost, we talked about things like albumin. Albumin is an absolute critical protein because of its role in maintaining that oncotic pressure. So remember, that helps in our capillary beds maintain that equilibrium so that we don't have fluid easily third spacing and losing pressure in our vascular system. We also have fibrinogen. So fibrinogen is, again, another protein that provides a critical role in being able to form that fibrin-based clot through enzymatic conversion to fibrin. And so that's where we want to think about it. So we have fibrinogen, and through some, the enzyme process in our, in our clotting cascade, we're able to then form fibrin, and that's absolutely critical for clot formation. But again, that's found in our plasma. And we have globular proteins, and there's multiple different types of globular proteins. But this category includes things such as enzymes. We have transporters. We have messengers, and messengers we can think of as hormones and insulin. We have proteins that provide critical structural functions and amino acid bases. We have immunoglobulins. So these are also critical in our immune response. And so when we think of just proteins, we need to realize this is so much of the critical functioning we think of in terms of normal metabolic processes that these all occur largely through the transport that plasma offers. We can almost think of it as our 
our vessels, you know, are the highways, but the plasma provides that medium for transport. It's also important, too, because as we think back to blood pressure, we talked about that oncotic pressure, which is, of course, that force coming back towards coming into the vessels. But we talked about hydrostatic pressure, which is the pressure within the vessels pressing out. And that, again, is an is a compilation of effects from our red blood cell count. We talk about platelets. Everything within the vessels adds volume, but plasma being mostly water provides that critical role too in that hydrostatic pressure, that pressure that helps allow the proper functioning in our capillary beds. Because again, it's an interplay between our hydrostatic pressure and then that oncotic pressure. Well, one, one of the things I think that's also important to remember is that things like glucose tr are, are transported and they, and they move through our plasma. All of our clotting factors in the clotting cascade, again, they are in our plasma. And so it's something to think about that when we start looking at coagulopathies, many times what we're looking at in particular is are we missing something that may or may not be in our plasma? Our electrolytes are moved through our plasma. And this is really important because many of our electrolytes, whether they're intracellularly focused or extracellularly focused, the plasma provides that medium for transport because again, it's water and they tend to go into solution well in water. And so thinking about something like potassium, Potassium is primarily inside a cell, but by altering extracellular potassium levels, we can start to induce pretty significant shifts from inside to outside the cell. And so it's really important. And I think plasma plays that really critical role too in helping us maintain the proper electrolyte balance. Plasma also plays a really important role in our removal of CO2 and in looking through our bicarbonate buffer system. Again, this occurs largely in our plasma. So this kind of naturally builds into the question, why would we administer plasma? Why would we give a unit of plasma? Typically what we're looking for are some specific situations. The first and foremost is, we were just talking about it, are the clotting factors. Do we have a situation in which we have fewer clotting factors, whether it be consumptive, meaning the body has consumed most of its clotting factors. We can be looking at situations like DIC. We could be looking at situations where we've had massive hemorrhage, whether we've lost clotting factors through the actual bleeding, or the body has had so much bleeding over such a significant period of time that we have consumed a large portion of our clotting factors. These would be situations where we say, okay, we need to start replacing those critical clotting factors that are no longer present. We could also be looking at a situation where we have an elevated INR. So here it's important to remember briefly, what is an INR looking at? So that lab is looking at your prothrombin formation time over a normalized or standardized prothrombin time. And again, when we think about prothrombin formation, it's largely based upon coagulation factors. So again, 
We're talking about factor one, two, five, seven, and 10 are all critical in that prothrombin formation. And so if we have an elevated time, so it takes longer than normal to form that prothrombin. And of course, for the lab, they have to activate, you know, they're going to have to in, add tissue factor to your, your, your plasma that's going to be in the lab. But in this situation, they're able to look at that time. And so we're able to kind of create a normalized ratio. And so we know typically people who have an elevated INR, either specifically, let's say we're on a, we're on a specific anticoagulant. So we know we, we have a, we have a heart valve, so we have a mechanical heart valve, and we know we want an INR from two to three, but we're just having trouble on their Coumadin. And so because of that, they come in with an INR of eight. And we say, okay, what do we want to do? Well, we know how the process works in terms of we know how Coumadin works. And so we say, okay, is the patient emergently bleeding? And we, and we say, okay, no. Do they need to go to surgery right away? We say, no. Okay, let's skip a dose. Let's adjust our dosing. And we watch the situation. But let's say we have a patient come in who emergently needs surgery and they have an INR of eight. So their INR is elevated. They have to go to surgery. What are we going to do? And this is where plasma is one potential treatment for an elevated INR because we are able to provide those clotting factors that are critical for it. Now, typically for an elevated INR, that is not the primary step, specifically if you're on Coumadin. Often they're going to be looking at things like vitamin K. They might be looking at PCC. And then fresh frozen plasma might kind of be our, our, our third option. But it is an option in correcting an INR. The important thing is to understand why is our INR elevated. And again, if we can understand the specific reason, and it could be due specifically to one of our clotting factors, we can say, okay, we know that if we give X amount of plasma, we should be able to reduce our INR. These are some of the primary situations we would use fresh frozen plasma. In critical care, you know, looking at the, at the, at the years have been in our, in our unit, being a post-surgical unit, the primary reason we end up giving plasma is typically in addition to packed red blood cells in a hemorrhage situation or like post-operatively, we've had significant hemorrhaging and so we've had to give multiple units of packed reds and to maintain our ratios, we're typically giving a certain amount of FFP in relation to our packed red blood cells. The other reason we'll do this on occasion are post-operative patients where they've had significant bleeding We've run multiple, multiple labs looking at the coags. We might run a tag. We might look at our complete, we do a complete clotting screen and we say, okay, we really do think in this situation we need to replace clotting factors. And so this can be another situation where we do start to think about this. We might have an elevated INR post-surgically. And again, this will be the primary way in which we're going to be using our plasma.
Now, at this point, we've looked at the situations and we say, okay, we're going to go ahead and give a unit of plasma. What are our concerns? What, what are we thinking about? Plasma, again, in many ways is, is collected in a similar fashion to red blood cells. We've kind of discussed that in the red blood cell episode. FFP is plasma frozen typically at zero degrees about eight hours after collection. So that's why it's called fresh frozen plasma. There is an additional one called uh, uh, Plasma Frozen 24, so that's the PF24 is what it's called. So that's typically plasma that's frozen within 24 hours. Um, the concern with that is sometimes it can have slightly lower levels of factor 5 and 8, but there, there are, sometimes those are used interchangeably, though there are slight differences. Typically, AB blood types are your universal plasma donor. So that's typically the plasma donor that is preferred because that specific plasma, remember, we got to think about what's in our plasma with our immune response. Typically, they do not have the antibodies. The administration is quite similar. Typically, we're going to be administering this again with a blood filter. We're going to be using an isotonic, ideally normal saline to be priming our tubing. We can use a blood warmer with these if needed. We can use these in mass transfusers with no concerns. We can pressure bag plasma. Um, on occasion, you might receive a plasma bag that has some slight discoloration or a slightly milky color to it. I had this recently and it kind of caught me off guard, but people with elevated cholesterol, uh, because of the donor, it can create a slightly opaque Almost not quite milky, but it does have that different look. So again, it could just be the cholesterol, people's bilirubin levels, and and there's just a host of other things can affect the exact color of it and consistency. So that's something I've noticed if you ever get multiple bags of plasma and you look at them all, they all do look a little bit different. Some of your concerns are similar to packed red blood cells. Again, we want to be concerned with circulatory overload. We can again have issues with immune response, specifically that transfusion related lung injury. Again, is something that we're thinking about with plasma. Uh, you know, I was reading some studies that suggested on occasion plasma can actually have greater incidences of that. And so that's something that, again, I think you want to be worried about. I think. The challenge with plasma is most of the times that I've given plasma are either in mass transfusion related situations where you're giving it very quickly or we're doing it post-operatively trying to correct a coagulopathy, which again, you tend to administer it a bit more quickly. And so that's again something to think about whenever you're administering this is to think through this, the clinical situation, but just really be watching carefully all the signs and concerns we had in the previous discussion about packed red blood cells. So today was a bit of a shorter episode, but I think plasma in many ways has some very specific uses as to why we use it. I think and also in a, in a lot of ways, many of the issues with plasma administration and, and the concerns were covered in packed red blood cells. The following episode, we're going to be talking about platelets, and then we'll follow up with cryo. And I think cryo will be a very short episode because it's it's really ties in nicely with the discussion of plasmas. It's, it's something that's quite specific. 
But the following episode on platelets, I think, should be a good discussion because there are some unique situations as to why we do give platelets. And there's some very unique administration concerns when we give platelets. With that, thanks for listening.